help us secure owner financing more than anything else. Uh, reason for that is we have a history already, so it makes it easier to navigate. And we have a relationship with the brokers and we've done multiple deals with them where they know we can come in and close. And then they also know that we can execute on our business plan and explain to the owners exactly what our business plan is. Last year, one of the deals we did last, the owner carried $14 million for us. Wow. So what was interesting is that he actually came to my office and he wanted to meet me in person before he agreed to that. So he came, his two other brothers, we sat, talked about our his, my history, kind of what our plans were to do on the building. Welcome to the Lion's Den, the real estate podcast for perspicacious investors who know they have the strength to succeed in the lucrative commercial multifamily industry. Be an expert advice on your way to becoming a top performer. I have two of my co-hosts today, Lisa Parrish and Donato Callahan. How are you two doing? Hi. Doing great. great. Happy to be here. The conundrum of today's episode, why is it important to have a well-structured loan on your property? With us today is the principal of Prime Capital Investments and other various entities within the real estate arena. He has 16 years of experience in the construction industry, possesses a Bachelor of Science degree in Business Administration, and worked for Bank of the West syndicating loans in the middle market arena. He has been acquiring multifamily assets since 2000 and has had numerous successful projects. Let us welcome our special guest, Danny Flores. Hey, Danny. Hi, Adam. Thank you. Thank you. Danny, what is the word of the day? Success. That's what is success mean? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. It, it, it depends. Yeah, I think success means something different for everybody. It's not always monetary success or success. It could be success in your children, successful relationships, successful friendships, successful trips. But either way, yeah, I think it's a super positive word. And depending on how you want to apply it, it's all good. Success Very means good. different things to a, a lot of different people. But we want to be successful in everything that we do. We do. At least try, right? Give it your best. Yeah, give it your best, exactly. Okay. In what ways did your experience in the construction, property management, and lending industries help you achieve success in your real estate ventures? Um, great question, Adam. Well, in the multifamily business, uh, we go in there, we do value-add deals predominantly. So, um, you know, being able to walk through the building where we do due diligence, where we do inspections, uh, the construction background really stands out and being able to see what's wrong with the building, um, see where we're going to put money in, understand the process, and even somewhat guess what the cost should be. Um, kind of helps us when we underwrite deals to pencil in our capital expenditure. It also helps when we talk to contractors, when we hire contractors, when we interview contractors, when we write our construction contracts as well. Uh, kind of keeping, keeping an eye on the pitfalls of renovations, making sure that we come in on schedule 
is money, if you've vacated a batch of units and you're renovating and contractor finish on time, that costs money. Vacant units will always cost money, so you have to be aware of that. So having those skills really helps me there. The banking and the banking, being a banker and the finance background that I have uh, kind of helps me get in and, and structure loans. Uh, that we put together for the properties helps uh, pick sometimes the right lender, sometimes the right program that the lenders offer. Um, at the end of the day, you know, we want to kind of forecast the unforeseen, such as we're having now in the current um, interest rate environment by putting rate caps on our loans or getting fixed loans or there's a lot of other things that we can do. But um, but those are skills that kind of make me as an operator very comfortable in navigating in the multifamily industry. What are you hearing from lenders right now on interest rates? Oh, well, they're high, right? Bridge, bridge is out. We can't afford to do bridge. I don't think anybody can. Rates are over a million dollars. So you can't do that. Um, you go out and you try to get a loan on the property. Um, so the question is, what does the income look like? That coverage ratio the banks have to hit for the loan to qualify the property. So at the end of the day, I think it's less loan dollars, less loan dollars and no CapEx dollars. And that's where, as operators and sponsors, we have to shift because now yeah. we have some money to do the capital expenditures. Yeah, and you definitely want to make sure that you're in fixed rate, no adjustable rate. It's true. And longer term is better as well. We don't want to get stuck in two or three years where we have to refinance. So even for the last year and a half or, you know, at least a year and a half, I've been recommending we need to go long-term fixed rates just because I went through the first recession or not, the first one for me, you know, in 07, 08. And that was, at, you know, there were a lot of people that realized as rates started to to go up or, you know, and they had adjustable rates, people were losing their homes and, you know, so it's definitely better to be in long-term, at least, you know, for the foreseeable future. We're actually starting to see, I don't know if you've seen that, these Lisa and Donato, uh, we're starting to see a little bit of deals come, come to us kind of off market that, that they're trying to unload because yeah. The rates are getting away from them. I mean, we've seen some that they're paying an extra million a year interest rates just underwater, trying to yeah. sell the property at the loan. So they're giving up all their equity. It, sometimes they don't even work at that price where right. somebody's going to have to give something up even more than what's possible. Yeah. And I think it's only, it's going to get worse before it gets better. You know, and it's going to be a great opportunity for buyers. It's already becoming that way, but it is a good time. You know, I'm telling a lot of a lot of students that are trying to trying to find deals to be patient because right now we're still there's still a lot of, most sellers are unrealistic thinking that they're going to be able to pull it off. But anyone that got a bridge loan two or three years ago is in trouble, and probably in trouble. And those are the ones that are going to be they're going to have to unload at reasonable prices or even short sale. Or figure out some sort of creative way of, uh, you know, of, of switching hands. And I think it's going to be a great opportunity for buyers that are ready to buy. 
are you still only considering agency debt or banks or um us us not necessarily that our our loan of preference is owner financing if we can get them not most of them probably can't offer that and we've been lucky enough the last two deals we bought we got over financing on them and that's fixed and one of them was fixed for five years the other one was fixed for four um so we're in a great position for those but you have to kind of look around depending on the size of the deal and just see where everybody's at i mean the lenders you got banks that are closing so they're out of the market you got um the appetite changes, so some of the lenders will raise their rates to kind of price themselves out of the market. It's tough. You got to look. You got to look to see what programs are available um, at the time of acquisition. I agree with you there. I think the best deals are going to be the seller financing deals. And sellers are going to be able to get better pricing if they get creative. So those are the ones that, those are the ones that I would want to hold out for as well, unless it's an assumption. The problem with assumptions is most of the time the leverage is too low. So then you have to bring in a lot of extra money. And, you know, obviously you're bringing in CapEx. You've got to bring in extra investor money. And it's been a little bit more challenging to raise money lately. I don't know if you if you feel this way as well. But, you know, everybody, everybody you know, when you're syndicating, you also have the investors that are kind of holding on a lot of them on the sidelines, waiting to see what's going to happen. Although, you know, I know as a passive investor myself, I'm trying to find ways of you know places to put our money that's not in the bank so you might have a little bit of you know an advantage there people don't really trust the banks right now yeah there's three of them and there's a couple more here that are that are mixed yeah since we're already on the topic we can dive in a little bit deeper especially considering the current lending environment we're in why is it imperative to have a well-structured loan on your property well uh, i'll take it um it's super important to always have a well-structured loan on your property, even more so now. Reason being that if you don't, say you have variable rates that you can't control, um, your NOI won't be able to cover it. Then you have to think if you're an investor, you have a deal, you have a loan that loan payments are kind of running from you, that you try to inject more money in the property, but the rates keep going up. At one point, you're going to run out of money. You can't keep doing it forever. So being able to, like Lisa said, is having fixed rates. Sometimes you have to be a little bit more, but right now it makes sense. You, you got to get that rate fixed. You got to get it under control. Nobody's really bridge because bridge is way too expensive. Seven, eight, nine percent just doesn't pencil out. And if you do bridge, then you have to buy the rate caps. And the rate caps are too expensive. Now that becomes too, too expensive to do. So you got to shift to something, a low product that will give you a fixed rate and give it to you for, like Lisa said, five years, if you can get it, you, gotta, you just got to be able to have enough, enough in there, get through the storm that we don't know how long it's going to last or how bad it's going to get. Yeah. Have you been seeing, have you been seeing any foreclosures or anything? I've heard of some groups that are struggling and we've seen some deals they've, um, brokers have sent to us, uh, see what would be interested in buying, but we just couldn't make the numbers work. Um, they want amps and we're 20% under that. It, it just doesn't work any other way. Yeah. 
know our cost of capital is way more than it used to be. It's coming now. I really, truly believe that the sellers are going to become more realistic, that they're going to start realizing that it, just to be able to not lose their property, they're going to have to do something quick. So I think, I think have, that that's coming this year. We have a few stabilizing factors you know, coming to the market. On one, you know, the uh, threat of default on a national scale, first in U.S. history, has been uh, weighing in, I think, many investors' minds for the past six years you know, 90 days, and we know that the uh, bill to avert that default would just pass the Senate like 63 to like 30 something, I don't know, passing, let's go into the Oval Office to be signed. So in one component, the worrisome that the U.S. is going to have its first ever default and inflation is going to skyrocket, housing capital is going to drastically increase even more it's at. I think that's being, um, you know, satiated for now. At the same time, we know that uh, the Fed is likely planning its first pause for the June, uh, for the for this quarter. So they're not in, uh, increasing interest rates for this next uh, likely uh, order, giving uh, some insights into the Fed's decision and maybe they'll do their quarter point rate how you get the next quarter. For now, they're pausing. So we're hitting this point now where we're starting or alleviating some fears from individuals, but we're not necessarily coming cratering back down with like interest rate cuts or everything going right back to normal. So we're staying this elevated rate for a little bit longer. So I believe that sellers, we've already seen some very large portfolios, especially in the Houston area, most notably, you know, being taken down or portfolios in California, syndicators getting foreclosed upon. Um, I think we are still in the next 60, 90 days seeing We'll see those who got uh, sweated out, who need uh, you know, their their practices will be exposed, and we'll see uh, people who ended up needed to having to liquidate their assets. But towards quarter four of this year, or maybe quarter one, quarter two of the following year, um, I think we will see, like to Lisa's point, um, um, Fed deciding if they're going to continue to raise, or if they're going to keep um, if they keep raising, then they're going to have you. It's going to be even more a pinch. I think capital will be more difficult to acquire than it is right now. If they stay steady, I think that's almost a positive thing. Um, as a, So that provides some stability in the market where we haven't had that for so many consistent increases. So while it's not a cut, stability is something that's as attractive as a lower rate right now. And if we do see rates start to come down, um, I think a lot of people will take that as the opportunity to hop right back in. Uh, and see the uh, competition go straight back to where it was. Maybe not quite as frequency, frequently as far as transactions, volume, uh, mm-hmm. people buying back into, okay, we burn a disaster. We are trying to make some money. Yeah, it's unlikely that they start cutting rates anytime soon after such a drastic increase, but it does seem likely that it could be held steady for a while. I think uh, another question I like to pose or I think about is, there are people that need to sell. And every single year that passes, there are properties that get aged out of many syndicators buy box, right? You know, for a long time, it was, you know, 1975 or newer, and then it's 1980 or newer, and not too much longer, 1985 or newer, 1990. But every year that syndicators were unable to move forward its transactions, either for cost of capital, unreasonable sellers, inability to work with lenders, secure the terms they need, Every year, more housing units in the United States go into leave the buy box and now are unbuyable. 
And as the nation who sees it with a shortage of housing units, that seems like the, uh, the short, short-term gain for long-term pain, where allowing syndicators and empowering syndicators to be able to take down and reposition large assets is what is allowing buildings to be saved from just falling out of, you know, falling into disrepair and allowing more housing units to be brought into the future that will continue to house people for, you know, decades to come. So I wonder if people uh, who are studying fiscal policy consider that fact as well. You you take syndicators out of the buying uh, market, how many properties go unsold and enter the never-to-be-bought-again situation? because they become just too expensive to ever turn around. It was the cost in housing units to the U.S. every quarter that happens. And then what is the cost fiscally to overcome that once housing units have exited the pool available supply? That, that is true. To add a little bit to that, Donato, is we find sometimes as we're raising capital or investors, you'll say, well, we don't want to buy 1960 buildings. We don't want to invest in 1970 buildings. And all of a sudden, you got to say, presents here a deal and it's a 1985 building. You're like, we can't buy it. We need 1980 plus or we need 1990 plus. We're going to 2000 plus for investors. Yep. And every year, I mean, every single year, it would be really interesting study to see, you know, to pull large syndicators who take down thousands of units um, every year or acquiring thousands of units over their careers. You know, what is the median and average uh, property ages that investors are willing to support. And if that is at a maximum 40 years, okay, great. Then the mid eighties and low and early to mid eighties is the oldest property people want to take down. And we, of course, mm. we have some new construction going up in some major metropolitan areas, of course, uh, but that's typically not workforce housing. That is generally luxury A-class properties. That have that are being sold at a massive premium that syndicators can't take down, and so you have these assets that are serving B and C class properties that are serving everyday uh, you know folks who are just trying to find a good spot to live. That syndicators can't come in and fix and improve. It's this like granted syndicators want to make money. It's a business. We all want to come in and be able to create this wealth for ourselves and our investors and our families. But that added benefit or true benefit of providing housing finding the capital that is injected into these properties on the government's behalf is a service that we have to provide if the goal is to house more people in the United States. And if that's not the goal, which according to you know media, it is the goal, house more people, what is the, what is the cost or what is, uh, what are we losing by having syndicators on the side? The general sentiment I've seen about residential real estate has been much more positive than office or retail or really anything else. Sure. There's just such low inventory still. And outside of the real issue is just lending. And that's what it really Mm -hmm. comes down to. And outside of that, people still need a place to live. And they're not building quite as much inventory as they should be. I think people are just going to get more creative. You know, the tougher that the market is, they get more creative. There's, there's definitely a lot of syndicators out there. Not a lot, not, not, not the majority. But there are syndicators out there that specialize in full repositioning or older properties and coming in and redoing the properties. If it's in a decent area or a revitalizing area, a path of progress area, 
then you could go in. I mean, I, I would go into 1960s or 70s if, if the price was right. You've got, obviously, the price has to be right. So sellers have to be more realistic. I'm looking at, you know, I, I've got a, a, you know, a property that most syndicators are not wanting. The, the demand is down. They're going to have to sell for less. And they're probably going to have to be creative with their financing since banks aren't going to want to finance on that. But that sometimes can be really amazing deal, especially for maybe a newer syndicator that's coming in and they want to be able to work with a seller who, you know, is pretty motivated to sell because he doesn't have, as, like I said, as much demand. He could, you know, do some kind of creative financing and help the, you know, help bridge that gap where people can revitalize those properties. And you can make a ton of money off doing that. It's a totally different model than what, what we've been doing. But definitely yeah, those, those properties are not totally gone. And especially because those older ones will probably have a higher cap rate. So they'll have, have higher yeah. cap goal because of that. But you have to do something to be able to pull those properties and, and provide free with you. Yourself. Yes, I, I think it comes down to area. If it's, if it's in a decent area, though. There are a lot of properties out there that are older, but in a good area. Where we bought a property that was built in the 60s, which I didn't really like at the, at the time. But they were building a brand new Publix right next to it. And it, you know, it increased in value without us even doing anything. But then we came in and did a bunch of upgrades. Um, and one thing to note also is that older properties, 50s and 60s, and, and actually before that as well, they built stuff a lot better back then. So, right. you know, the, the bones of the, the buildings um, can sometimes be, you know, much stronger than a newer build. It's the plumbing and the electrical and the roofs and those sort of things and, you know, fire safety and stuff like that, that if you can upgrade those and you could end up with, again, if you're in a decent area, you could end up with a property that's, that, you know, could be valued up there with the newer stuff. Why did you sell your property management company? So I, so yeah, so I had a property management company here, LA, LA County, uh, Orange County area in California. Um, that I started back in 2006 from scratch, built it up, and everything was pretty good as far as operating in California till till January January first of 2020. 2020 actually, uh, AB fourteen eighty two kicked in, made California um, rent control, implement rent control in the state of California. Then we got COVID hit and they start just you know, telling tenants they don't have to pay rent, move them out. And, and you know, when you have like problem tenants, you need to get rid of them. But when you have tenants that aren't paying rent just because, you know, you know the COVID card, and they don't pay for, we didn't have too much of a problem, but, but you get all these rules. Then they start implementing more rules in the city of LA. County of LA wants to follow it. And just so many things going on. It made it so difficult to try to keep up with all the rules and the headaches and eviction that you could do. And I said, you know, why do I need to keep doing this? We, you know, we're, we're, we're buying buildings. We're doing well there. Uh, there's no need for that. So I ended up finding somebody who was willing to buy it and I had talked out to a handful of other buyers, but I found one that wanted it, it was going to take it and run with it, roll his business. So he's in the management, property management business. So he went with struck a deal that made sense for both of us. And I ended up selling it about two years ago. So 
You had also told me when you got started in this business that you had also told me that you knew that you were going to want to sell it because you really wanted to put all your heart and soul and time into the syndicating business. Exactly. So so I think the timing worked out where, you know, you were ready to exit and then everything fell in line where you knew it was time to go. I had I had that 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 thought and, and COVID just kind of pushed you over the cliff. Yeah. We'll go with that. <laughs> I that was heard, definitely the right thing to do. I can't remember where I read this or heard it on another podcast somewhere, but that it's actually a good time for property management companies because a lot of people have been self-managing their own properties thinking it's easy. And then whenever, when all the turbulence and tumultuous nature of the market is starting to kick in, you need an actual third-party property management company to, to come in. Yeah, I, I agree. I think in the, the smaller, the smaller, at least in, in my area, um, mom and pop operators maybe own a couple of houses or maybe a duplex or a fourplex. Uh, and now that you have all these rules that they've implemented, they don't know what to do. Before, it used to be easy, right? You just collect the rent. They pay you the rent. If they don't pay it, you just do a regular eviction. You can kind of make it through that way. But when you start giving notices and you don't know the rules and then all of a sudden your notices aren't valid and you can't do what you thought you could do and you can't evict because you thought you could evict, you're like, wait a minute, I need some professional help. So the companies that are coming in and being able to, to learn all those regulations, train their employees with the new laws and have, have the, the system to a place to continue that, I think, yeah, they'll, they'll absolutely pick up more accounts. Do you think... Uh... Don't have to ask this question. But for releasable for releasable audiences, property managers in a down market. You know, typically when we're buying assets that are gonna be what well, that we get turned around. Uh, we're looking for property managers who may be focused a lot on filling the building as opposed to getting the rents to where they should be, market rate. So maybe a property manager company just focuses on getting it maybe 95, 96, 97% occupied, but their rents are $250 below the rest of the market. Do you find that in a down market that those property managers who typically prioritize higher occupancy over pushing rents are more successful or less successful in that strategy? And would you say that when it comes to property management in your background, do you, can you give a little bit of insight onto if there's a good time to prioritize occupancy over pushing rental rates and why that, when that might be? Well, I think at the end of the day, occupancy should probably be number one. Rates should be close behind. Now, I guess the property management experience that we have is we work really close with the regionals use third-party management in our own, all our buildings. And they need to know and keep a pulse on the market, right? Uh, when we have a weekly calls, we'll see, okay, where are we at? We track what we're doing lease-ups. We have the leasing agents, this daily reports. So we know what the traffic is on a daily basis. We know what they lease on a daily basis. When you start seeing traffic down, that's a red flag. So that's where you hop on the phone and you say, okay, what's going on in the market? Uh, what are the, what's, what's everybody else doing? Are they giving concessions? Are they lowering prices? Um, or are they doing both in some cases? 
Um, a lot of times we try to kind of front load conditions if we're starting to do them. And I know we're starting to do them in Phoenix uh, because you want to maintain that, that, that high rent, your rent will contribute to your NOI moving forward. The higher you get it, the better it is, but you also want to keep it rented. You don't want to compromise a vacancy because you don't want to reduce your rent by, say, a hundred bucks. It'll cost you more money to keep it vacant. So it's like a balancing act, right? You got to keep yeah. a pulse on the market. You got to see how fast and what kind of traffic they're getting. And you have to be able to adjust your rents, your concession to what the market's doing at the same time. Yeah. So with your curb properties, now that you sold your property management company, um, when you have your syndications, you, you don't self-manage those properties. Do you, or do you no. work with third-party management? Do you work with third-party? Okay. Yeah. And so for the third party, uh, is it Tarantino or uh, who do you work with in your property? Well, management? we had Tarantino up in the Carolinas, but we use Asset Living down in uh, in Phoenix and in, in Arizona. We use two different companies in Arizona. Asset Living is a larger company. So they're really good at managing larger buildings. We had another smaller company that we use for the smaller building. They're really good. Gotcha. Gotcha. Like they have their, their, their structure to do typable building is successful and versus the other one, their structure to do smaller buildings is really right. successful. And then to tie this back into this podcast episode, I had a point I was going somewhere with all of this, mm -hmm. uh, with your experience in property management, so personally over, it sounded like a 15, 14 year period owning your own. Do you find that your experience in vetting property management companies and working with high caliber ones is a benefit to you when trying to negotiate favorable owner financing rates to properties you're looking to take down? Because the owner, because part of the owner financing is that, you know, there's the risk that you're not going to work out, owner's still carrying the loan, and you still have the potential difficulty of convincing the owner this is going to be a good, uh, persuading the owner that is, this is going to be a good deal for both of you. Would you say that your property manager experience has helped you in those situations, persuade owners that you have the skills to back up and make this uh, strong investment in a time when lending is more difficult? Um, I almost want to say that the relationship with the brokers have probably been the ones that have helped us secure owner financing more than anything else. Uh, reason for that is we have a history already, so it makes it easier to navigate. And we have a relationship with the brokers and we've done multiple deals with them where they know we can come in and close. And then they also know that we can execute on our business plan. So it's kind of on them usually to say, hey, this is a good buyer that can close. And this guy will pay you on your loan. Um, the risk to us is losing the equity we default in the loan. So we're not going to do that, right? We're going to do everything possible that we can. As long as we make our payments on time and we do, we increase valuation by renovation and rental increases. Um, I haven't seen any real drawback where we have to really get in there and and explain to the owners exactly what our business plan is. Right. What I do have, we just, um, I want to say a year and a half ago, call it, we did uh, 
No, no, no. Last year, last year, one of the deals we did last, the owner carried fourteen million dollars for us. Wow. So he was he was going to carry twenty. Um. So what was interesting is that he actually came to my office and he wanted to meet me in person before he agreed to that. So he came. There's two other brothers. We sat. We talked. Kind of, kind of got comfortable, I guess, with me. Uh, talked about our his my history. Kind of what our plans were to do on the building, but I, I, I don't, I'm kind of reluctant to disclose all our plans because that's our secret sauce, right? So he's selling, sure, sure, sure. selling them, what are you going to do to it? And all of a sudden he could say, hey, I don't want to sell it anymore. I'm going to, Danny said he was going to do it. Right. But, but at the end of the day, they got comfortable and, and the deal, we were able to get the deal through. But, but I know that our brokers helped carry that one at the same time. Too. Donato, I think to, to your point though, I do think because most of my seller financing experience is direct to seller. I didn't have brokers in between. And I do think that they're looking at you know the whole picture of who this investor is. So the fact that you have that property management experience, Danny, I do think that that helped you. And even if that's not the specific, you know, thing that they were focusing on. The brokers started their relationship with you, knowing your whole, you know, the whole package that you are. I think having property management experience or asset management experience, you know, all of that kind of goes into to play on, you know, who this person is. You definitely have to show them that you're going to be able to, I mean, brokers go away after the deal closes and they're stuck with you for the next five or whatever years. Mm -hmm. So they definitely have to, to trust you and your team. Yeah. I agree. I agree. That's a good I question. think what we're saying here, oh, thank you. I think what we're saying here, Danny, is that your impressive resume uh, makes it hard to believe that everyone can be successful because you've just been so successful for so long that as a beginner, I'm just so disincentivized to even trying because you're just too good. So if you could just, you know, either take a, take a loss somewhere, just get more relatable, I think that would really help us feel that we can succeed in multifamily. Let me tell a story really quick. I know you're joking, Donato, but let me tell a story really quick. I think I've already said this on the podcast, but since you're here, Danny, I'm going to tell it anyway. But um, I, I was your coach when you first got started and with Dave Wendell. And you and I had, you know, several different, several students, and I would give everybody homework at the same time, you know, in two weeks, read these books or do this or whatever it was. And everyone would come up with excuses because everyone was so busy. I've got kids. I had this. I had that. And for whatever reason, didn't do it. But you not only did it every single time, with never an excuse. And I think you were the busiest one of all of them. But you actually would do 10 times more. You would do so much more in between. And instead of like a lot of them asking me a bunch of like, weird, I had one student that I, I have a deal. Can you write the LOI for me? Well, no, that's not what your coach is for. But when it comes to you, Danny, anytime that you had anything, your questions were smart. You could tell that every single day you were working so hard to figure this out. And I love students like that. And I will help students all day long. You know, it's not about the couple dollars that I made as a coach. It was, you know, as a coach, we do that because we want to help students and we want to see students succeed. And what's so frustrating is when, as a coach, you pour into someone that doesn't do the work, that doesn't take it oh, seriously. That's so frustrating. 100%. It's such a waste. And that's why I stopped doing the official coaching. And now I'm like, I'm going to pick and choose who I want to work with, but people like you and you're, you are the, that's why you're successful. This is no luck, maybe a little bit of luck, but it's not luck. It's your <laughs> hard work and it's your determination and it's your attitude. That's why you're so successful. 
Thank, thanks so much, Lisa. And thank you, Donato. The, it, it, yes, it's there's no secret sauce. It's just you know, you know, right. you sub kids on hey, hand have four bugs. I had yeah. the same thing that everybody else had on date. But yeah. the thing is that you have to do what nobody else is doing. When you You're peter sure. out and sit down and watch TV, you got no business watching TV. I don't know. I don't watch TV because guess what? Because I'm grinding. I'm grinding. I'm trying to figure things out. It's an everyday process. You never know everything. Um, meeting people, talking to people, asking questions. And stick with it. And, you know, I guess the more deals you look at, the higher your chance of getting a deal. When I travel to to visit our buildings, I always ask the guys that say, set me up with two, two, two brokers. Two brokers that I hadn't seen to do lunches, to do drinks, to do coffee, to decide, just show up. You got to talk to these guys, call these guys, you got to sit in front of them. So it's those little things that you do um, as you're looking for deals, or those little things that you do as you're looking for loans, stay in contact with your brokers, yeah. your own brokers, and your lenders. And we have lenders that invest in our deal. We have we have yeah. brokers that invest in our deals. Our own brokers put money in the deals that we buy. Yeah. Because they see what we're doing, right? Contractors, you know, treat the contractors right. Pay them what you're supposed to pay them. They'll bend over backwards for you. So it's the little things that you do always. You gotta remember we all we're all looking for money. We need we need to eat, right? So you help each other and just deliver. And that's I think that's kind of what it takes. And just consistently being out there and networking, going to seminars. Um, you never know who you're going to meet. There's been seminars that I just, like the one seminar that I literally did not want to go to. It was in Atlanta about six years ago. I didn't want to go. We were going as a favor to someone else, but it was a Dave Lundell and it was, you know, going to be 30 people there. We've been doing it for years. And I felt like, you know, what are we ever going to get out of this? And that's where I met Ryan Woolley. And Ryan Woolley changed my life. So, and, and introduced me to Tyler and everything else. So you just never know who you're going to meet, where you're going to meet them and, and what's going to end up happening. And I feel like, you know, sometimes you go and you're like, man, that was kind of a waste or I didn't really get much out of that or whatever. But more times than not, it's the other way around. More times than not, it is, oh my gosh, I'm so glad that I went ahead and did that because I met so-and-so or I, I learned maybe one little thing that you learn that saves you a bunch of money or makes you, helps you, you know, makes you realize you need to pivot something that you're doing. So are you going to limit less? Or... Who's that question? Danny. For? Danny. No, you know what? I didn't plan it. I, I, um, Adam was telling me about going and said, yeah. It's, it's hard to make all the events because there's just so many. I mean, you can travel five or six, six times a month. I know, but it's Robert Kiyosaki in Phoenix. Oh, <laughs> uh, no. When is that? Tell me. Danny, Danny let, me do some, let me do one for you. And, and let's you do our commercial. Well, if you want to go, I'm, I can see if I can get you a ticket. Okay. Well, you didn't offer that to us. <laughs> I didn't know about that point. Okay. <laughs> so we just we just booked we we just finalized our transactions. Um, and it's, actually, I, I should offer you guys first. I can see if they can maybe get a refund for one of your tickets and give you guys a free one. I can be cool. Uh, or put you in the spot and see if they can offer it to Danny to come out. I'll leave that into my lovely uh, partner's hands. But we just got we just got notified that we might have an opportunity for another ticket. Uh, offer it to Danny for our team. All right. Let me know Reach out to me, Donato, and we'll figure it out. It's okay. 15, June 15th 16. to June 17th. We're counting on all our viewers being there. Yeah, every single one. Well, this isn't going to be out before then, is it? 
What? I don't know. Maybe. No, I don't think it's. He's the second. Yeah. Yeah. It's coming up soon. Just plan one of your asset management trips. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I. I even have Greg going. Greg never goes to seminars. He's actually okay. not going to go to the seminar, but he's coming just to go hang out and do the networking. There you go. Okay. Well, okay. Let, let me see. Let me see. Okay. Work and, on that. and then who do we know one of the sponsors, Donato? I think you do know one of the sponsors. And technically, two of you are sponsors as part of the company. Uh, but great investor. Uh, my software company has helped make the real estate market work for you. We're making real estate market research easy. It's officially a sponsor of the Limitless event. We have a booth. We will have a whole spot set up at the event to come check us out. And as we, as of uh, yesterday, which will be June first at this point in this podcast, um, we just released our latest version of Brand Investor. Yeah, uh, we buddy. Just want, yeah, buddy. Uh, we now offer Airbnb listing data, Airbnb occupancy trends, live rent reports, population by zip code, appreciation by property type. And a ton of a ton of improvements, a ton of upgrades just came out yesterday. And we have a lot of fun stuff coming for the software uh, coming out in about two weeks. I'm very happy to say that we just met with uh, a very large education group uh, with 70,000 members uh, today for a demo to keep promoting Bright Investor. So if you guys want to come out and wow. see what it's all about, the new way to make the real estate market work for you, and uh, go sign up at brightinvestor.com with A&E. Uh, a and E's discount code. Come see us at Limbo's conference. Danny, are you a bright investor yet? No, I'm putting you on the spot. It's uh, it is the the latest thing. It is uh, the new way to make the market work for you. So, like you know, we talk about syndication and we talk about why, where we buy. Location matters a ton. So, I have a million dollar property uh, that's in. The cash flow is hundred grand and a million dollar property. The cash was a hundred grand, identical properties. But one is in you know, nowhere, Michigan, and one is in Los Angeles. Which one do you want to buy? But typically, you're going to buy yeah. the one. It depends. Neither. Of a lot of information. <laughs> Neither, maybe. So fast. But when it comes, yeah, but when it comes to real estate, where you buy is by and large, if not the biggest thing that affects the success of your investment. For not only how many people have demand for housing in that area, how rents are performing, what the local crime environment looks like, and all the things that make an investment successful, like nearby businesses, entertainment areas, employers, because your property is just a representation of the community around it. And you're buying the right little community provides a great investment return and a great opportunity. Yeah, forced appreciation. Yeah, forced appreciation will only go so far. You need to have the market on your side. Uh, local vicinity. Absolutely. So over the last 18 months, and with Adam and Lisa's support, uh, we've been building Bright Investor, which takes all that market data that affects your investment that you're not in control of and helps make the real estate market work for you. Property by property, knowing exactly what's going on. Local crime, rents, appreciation, population and job growth, businesses, school rankings, Airbnb performance, even being able to upload your own leads and do quick focuses to dial in the honest properties faster. Well, I think it's cool. Yeah. yeah. All right. That, it's, yeah. It was, it's, it's all, all your market research all bundled up into one, one app or one your website. So yeah. Go to a bunch of different places. The, those are questions that we ask every time we're looking at a new deal. Yeah. We want to know. And it, exactly. And I'm happy to say that we've answered them. 
Adam and Lisa, this is some of our biggest supporters making this platform out there. We've been iterating like crazy. We just released a new version and I've already gotten DMs over and over again saying, oh my gosh, this is the next level uh, as we're rising our way up. This is, I think it's a game changer for how syndicators invest, how they move money, how they choose locations, which properties they focus on. Uh, but we're coming for it all, helping as many people as possible make the market work for them. So we're, we're currently in conversations. I, I swear by Scout's honor, in a few weeks, you're going to start here in Bright Investor, a lot of places. And thankfully, you know they got it on the inside. Right, right. Now, here, so are you ready for CoStar to come in and buy you out? If they want to offer me nine figures, I think we can have that conversation. So I give my investors a solid exit, but we'll see. Are you going to drop us once all that happens? You got to fight for the small man. <laughs> no, if, uh, I, the, whole, the whole goal of this product was to make something that was valuable for people. That, for, I do due diligence and market research for our team here. I wanted to build something that I thought would be extremely useful. I would be valued, that would be valuable to me as a market researcher and help make that for other people. Goal has always been to help the individual investor compete with the absolute mass of corporations that have an unlimited budget, unlimited time. The people who deserve access to this information, who deserve to be able to succeed in real estate and do not have the resources and to be able to afford thousands of dollars or spend making a full-time job just doing market research. In order for us to sell the company, it would have to reach a level where I know it is an absolute peak. It's been made the most amazing, most perfect, cannot possibly be improved anymore product before I'd even consider, you know, selling it. And if it did, it'd have to go to someone who's going to be empowering the little guy uh, for, for moving forward. That's how much Brian Investor means to me. It's an amazing journey. But Danny, because you're in Phoenix and, you know, are you guys currently looking to, going back on topic here, you know, as you found that owner financing is the type of loan product, financing product that offers you the best chance of getting into another asset right now. Do you find that you're having to expand outside markets you've historically played in, or are you still able to dive deeper and leverage your experience and credentials in that market to better have a better chance of securing owner financing, say in Phoenix? Well, you know, it seems like every time we want to kind of look out, we get a new deal that, that's brought to us in, in Phoenix and in Tucson. There's really two markets in Arizona. So, so um, we're embedded in there. We just, we know we've built good relationships and the deals keep coming. Um, so we'll keep buying it, right? Um, I would say probably most of my expectations are not to get owner financing because in many cases, if people have leverage on the property, they can't, they can't do owner financing. They have to have, there has to be a situation where the owner either has their property paid for or has very low debt. So then you don't take the debt out and then he can carry and wants to uh, spread out the income over, over three, four, five years um, regarding his taxes. And it has to be someone who's not ready to exchange. So, so owner financing is hard to find. And you just get lucky to get them, I guess, at the time. Um, but we are looking at other markets. I spent about a couple months ago, I spent a week out in Denver. I have a friend who's out there and is pretty well established. They kind of were trying to learn that market. You know, that could be another potential market. And just kind of, you know, we're open to having the markets draw us in expansion. Um, if the deal, if there's a deal that makes sense, um, the deal, it depends on your, your area, your population growth, your path 
progress, your job, job uh, situation in specific areas? Do you have employers coming in? What's going to support? That's the same questions that we ask ourselves that you, know, you think they're software answers for you is why would we go there? Right? Yep. Um, and so we can answer those questions with the answers we want to hear uh, from the data, then we're open to going to different areas. The other thing that you also have to consider is, can you sell it to your investors? You know, you're going to a different area, um, you know, one of the first questions they ask is, have you done any deals here? Luckily, mm -hmm. history where we've done deals in multiple areas, that helps. But going to one brand new area, you have to set your teams up, right? You have to your contractors, your your um, property management company. Once again, you have to go and screen and make a good decision wherever your place is going to manage for you correctly, whoever's going to build for you is going to build for you correctly. And so you have to rebuild the teams out there. Um, not mm -hmm. that it's not possible, it's, it's, not, it's doable. But, you know, it's, the area has to be the right area to, to, to do it in. Definitely. And I see, a, I see a mistake that a lot of students make is spreading themselves too thin with, you know, yep. too many areas that they're looking in or they buy one property, one area, and then they, because their broker brought it to them, they, or they, end, up, they end up in a different market. Um, and I get it. You know, you're going, especially when, there's a scare, when you feel there's a scarcity of deals, you're going to go with what your broker brings you. But, you know, we stuck with one area. I mean, I don't, we didn't know what we were doing when we did this, but looking back on it, it is the one thing that I do believe that we did right was we were in one particular area. We built our portfolio. Like you said, Danny, we had, well, we were the management company, but we had the contacts. We knew the contractors. We knew, and when you're reusing the same contractor over and over, they give you much better deals. In fact, if you can give them enough business where it's their full time job, they'll give you a great deal. And it makes a, it, but it's hard to go into a new market. So we were in one market and then slowly, you know, once we were like, kind of felt like we were maxed out there, then we moved into another market. But each time you go into a new market, it's a whole new set of challenges and a whole, you know, different rules, different government, different eviction law rules, so many different things that you have to learn. It's almost like, you know, starting over again. And it makes sense to move, but you want to move slowly, you know, and stay in one area for a while get your investors comfortable. But if investors are comfortable with you and your ability and you've been successful in a particular area, most likely those investors are going to trust that you are going to do your research and going to do the work to get into that next to that next area. But I think property management company is the key. You have a good property management company, they should have a lot of the resources already. If they're experienced in that market, they'll already have a lot of the contractors and leads and things that you need. And then you can you know, kind of build from there. Yeah, so maybe it's just maybe two or three areas at most, I think. Yeah. Um, you, you don't want to go too thin no. to, to kind of follow up on that. It's just just be really good in one or two areas and you don't have to yes. go anywhere else, really. I mean, yeah, you can go make it. You hear people doing it, but, but you just can't chase it all. It's impossible. I agree. Totally agree. Well, Adam, I know we're getting pushed that hour to the uh, trivia for us today. Are you ready? For the commercial yeah. multi-family lion's den trivia time. Got the cigars. Finally. Oh, okay. It's back there. Oh, did you tell oh, Danny you should have a cigar? Oh, you you got to do your market research. 
you gotta tell <laughs> the men that come on at least. You gotta tell everybody. Yes. Uh, we own a Godfather and I, uh, Adam's Godfather. We uh, send each other cigars and pipes back and forth. Uh, Adam recently sent me awesome humidor that got lost in the mail. US UPS, oh. USPS, you gotta yeah. fix your stuff. Uh, it was very, very endearing. I'm very sad that it got lost in the mail, but uh, we're in a bit of a gift war. When it comes to tobacco Did you ever... products, if you put the right address in, but they copied it incorrectly, uh, it is lost to the streets of St. Louis somewhere. Either try and find it or I'll get a refund and like, have another one made. First question. New York City office vacancy rates broke records, oh. rising to 16.1% in the first quarter of 2023, meaning 84% of available space is leased. According to Castle Systems, which tracks card swipes through security systems, what's the actual rate of office units that are occupied? Okay, so there's Belize, and then there's how many people are actually walking in the building. Yeah, like once leases go- come up, what are you really going to see? 70%. Yeah, oh, I think that's a good guess. Uh, I'm going to go even lower. I'm going to say 58. 63, 63, 58, and 70. I know I'm probably high. The answer is 49%. Oh, my gosh. Oh, Oh, New York. Not ideal. 35%. Wow. And they're still building big office buildings because they weren't preparing for it. Oh, my gosh. They need to to reallocate those funds somewhere else. That sucks. The thing is, you got these companies who are stuck in a 10-year lease, and they're like, hey, we got to get people in the door. They need to build... They need to build shelters for homeless people. Yeah, but something just not office and not retail. Oh, geez. New York. Sorry. They'll probably end up, they're going to end up with homeless people. I mean, probably. I mean, it makes sense. You know, you have all these immigrants, you got a lot of people that eat housing, and the city's looking for places to fill them and or or, work that as well. You got a bunch of empty buildings. Office conversions. Yeah. Convert to condos. Yeah. Wherever possible. Or like if I'm one of those people who's doing a new development right now in New York City, I'm going to do everything I can to say, hey, how expensive will it be to just transition or plan to a multifamily or condos and not build as as an office? Because anyone that's developing right now, you're developing office retail, you're just asking to lose money. 49% though. That's all. So Danny, New York City Danny win that one? No, you did. You? Oh, no, no. no. Oh, no, no, no Donato. Donato was. Oh, 50, yeah, I was at 58. Yes, 58. Right. Nice. Unfortunately, I was right. I'm sure those, syndicate, those people with the buildings are not happy right now. There's still loads of time to do. I'm sure they're not happy. Oh. Question number two. I don't know if everybody already knows this. What are the four largest banks in the U.S.? Chase. Morgan. JP Morgan, Chase, Wealth Fargo. Wells Fargo. The three those three are the easiest. I didn't know the U- US one. Bank. Everybody put in their question. There. That's a U- guess. US Bank is, is, it, is it Washington Mutual? That's a bank, right? Washington Mutual? It's JP Morgan. That the one? Oh, is it okay? That asked oh, I don't know. what's the fourth one? The fourth one. It's like nobody got it right. Citibank. Oh, uh-huh. 
Gotcha. Citibank. Should have called that one. Mm. Massive banks. Massive, massive. So none of us got there. It just kind it of weird. It might under the radar, but they're a large institution. It's almost the right way to do it. If you're going to be really, really large, staying out of the media's, staying quiet is probably a good way to do business. Yeah. You know, word of mouth. You know, don't spend a lot of advertising dollars because your service is great. I mean, I haven't used Citibank, so maybe that's not true, but that would be my assumption. Okay. Question number three. According to the FDIC, the unrealized losses for banks on available for sale and held to maturity securities reached about $70 billion during the 2008 crisis. As of quarter four of 2022, what are the total unrealized losses for banks? Oh, boy. Cool. Hey, what's the Signature Valley Bank? Oh. In front, I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess 2008, though. But a like, lot of banks failed. Now. Yeah, see, there's fewer banks in play now. So when they do fail, it's larger. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb here. I'm going to say $150 billion. Anybody else? I'm not even sure what to. Uh, I'll guess $100 billion. All right, I'll go $120 billion. They had saved in between. Huh? There we <laughs> go. Uh-huh. Right That's between. your bets right there. <laughs> The answer is six hundred and twenty billion. Oh, oh wow! Jeez. Way off. You're telling me that as of this year, the amount of money as unrealized losses is nearly nine times as much as two thousand eight. Yeah, as a quarter four of twenty twenty two. Oh, oh, unrealized Jeez. losses. Yeah. True. Well, true. Actual losses yeah. should make sell securities if they need to for liquidity needs. So Donato, Donato wins. I don't feel good about taking that one. I was so far off. Oh, congratulations, man. Donato. It's all your fault. Congratulate me. That was six hundred bill. Jeez, full lot of cash. You got to wonder how long it will take to recoup that. You know, if maybe they're all investing in a video right now, hoping that it goes back up or keep, keep or sorry, keeps going up. But uh, that's a lot of cheddar to read to, to get back. Kind of puts it in perspective for syndicators. Like, oh, I need a couple million dollars. Like, oh, there's a bank over there that needs 600 billion. Oh, okay. <laughs> then they're having a worse day than I do. It's scary. Nah, it's all right. <laughs> I mean, we have uh, the banks that recently failed. You know, all their depositors got guaranteed. Let's, uh, so as far as consumers go, it's yeah. not too big of a deal when the banks, all those banks fail, but no, I mean, the depends. FDIC can only secure, I don't remember how many billion. Very small portion. Oops. Yeah. yeah. So that's what's what's scary now? when you have money in the bank. Mm-hmm. Almost like people should put it into multifamily real estate instead. We're uh, a little bit I more secure, now. right? They need to find people yeah. like us to put their money to work. I mean, legitimately too, you know, I think some consumers or potential investors look at it like, oh, they're just trying to raise money to make money. Like, no, legitimately, what if you were an individual who's at a bank that the powers that be decided to not guarantee all the deposits and you had a million dollars in there? Well, you know, you knew the risk when you went with a bank. Is that the kind of, is that the level of wealth building that you want someone, level of control over your wealth you want somebody else to have? 
And with syndication, it's such more tangible. We can point to our business plans and say, here's why we can do what we can do. Here's what the risk is. Here's what the returns are. Here's our track record. And what we're doing isn't, you know, subservient to a phone call or a group of people that we, you don't know, deciding whether or not you're going to get your money covered. You know, this is an asset. This is uh, brought together by the community to help uh, guarantee, you know, guarantee the best we possibly can cash flow and equity. It was really, truthfully, it is a mutual exchange of benefit between those who operate and those who invest in these deals. And if I could change anything about the perception of multifamily syndication, it is that this is something for the people. This is something that is a benefit to everyone who chooses to invest in it. But that's on two fronts, right? Because one, we're improving the, uh, the condition of the housing. So you have the tenants and residents that we're improving the places they're living in. And we're helping the investors make money and invest their money and multiply their money at the same time. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know, all of a sudden, you, have, you always have people who are on Google reviews saying, oh, this property is an eyesore, the management doesn't do enough work, or the plumbing's terrible, and you have the city, he doesn't like that. You know, properties have fallen into disrepair, become hotspots for crime, or they're not collecting the tax revenue they could because the property value has gone down. And then you come in as a syndicator and you're helping the city get higher tax revenue, even though we don't like to pay it, but we still do. We get, they get more tax revenue. The city doesn't have a nicer property, taking care of any potential crime attractants. Residents have a nicer, cleaner, safer property to live in. Investors get returns. And truly, we help provide and you know, prop up the housing units that are necessary in this country that we're so short on by tens of thousands. This truly wins across the board. When it comes to being able to do this asset class, and of course, if you're listening to this podcast, you agree. And yeah. so go out there, making your personal mission to talk to five people about why multifamily syndication is really for them and that they should invest with you. Go get yourself some hard assets. You like hard, I like hard assets and I cannot lie. Any final thoughts? I think Donato just gave it to us. <laughs> I like hard yeah. assets and I cannot lie. I get that on a t shirt right there. But yeah. Danny, any final thoughts? No, I think it's great. It's great um, um, to be kind of uh, um, casually speaking about what we do. Um, kind of helps people who are in the business, things to look out for. You know, we talked about loans and properties and, and, and financing. And then talk a little bit about, you know, um, why, why we should invest in, you know, like Donato said, in hard assets. You know, it's, it's, we got to protect our wealth. Um, we have to figure out a way of growing it. And like real estate is, is, I'd say it's the number one way to do it. Something we can control, something we can guide, and, and, and we know it's there. Exactly. Thank you for joining us on the Lion's Den, Danny. Yeah. Thanks for inviting awesome. me, Adam. Thanks for being here. Appreciate yes. it. It's been awesome. Thanks. Thank you, Danny. Thanks. 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 Thank you for listening to the Commercial Multifamily Lion's Den podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure to leave us a like, subscribe, and share with anyone you think can gain value from today's episode. What conundrums are you facing? Let us know in the comment section below, and we'll get to it in a future episode. If you're interested in passively investing with us, you can go to am-multifamily.com or email FIA at am-multifamily.com. Those links will be in the show description along with the Lion's Den Facebook page and website. Thank you. And have a roaring day. Ah. <laughs> Favorite part of the show. Very cool.